Chemistry Cake Online. What's up, Cake Nation, and welcome back to the Chemistry Cake Online podcast, where chatting about chemistry has never been sweeter. Chemistry Cake is online, and today airs the fourth episode in our Biochem Chem Bio season. To recap, we had Heather Masson Forsyth chatting about LC8 proteins, Kayla Wilson chatting about sea sponges and isoprenoids, and Misael Romero Reyes chatting about aptamers and polymers. Today's sweet guest received her bachelor's degree in chemistry at Rice University, worked as a high school chemistry teacher for some time, and now is currently a graduate student in chemistry at the University of California in sunny San Diego. Folks, would you help me in welcoming today's sweet guest and my friend, Hannah Rutledge. Hannah, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super hyped that you were able to chat with me today. I just wanted to check in and ask how you were doing. I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? I, you know, I'm doing all right. I'm hanging in there. Uh, quarter is about to start up soon, so I'm kind of excited about that. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm actually kind of familiar with the chemistry that you do, primarily because we've gotten to chat about it before. And I have got to say that it is so cool, uh, which is why I am so stoked to have you on today. And um, I, I did notice that your favorite molecule is essentially the molecule that you are currently working with. So Hannah, <clears throat> would you kindly clue the listeners at home in what your favorite molecule is and why it is your favorite? So my favorite molecule is an enzyme called nitrogenase. Calling it a molecule might be a little misleading because it's made of four peptides. So this protein is actually four molecules all joined together. And what it does is it actually takes nitrogen from the air and it converts it into ammonia, which is needed for life. So if you think of DNA and some carbohydrates and all other proteins, they require reduced forms of nitrogen. And so nitrogenase actually takes the nitrogen that we just breathe and our bodies can't use and converts it into ammonia, which can then be synthesized into all these different molecules that we need for life. Like? Like ammonia, which can then be used. So I, I guess I should backtrack a little. So nitrogenase, humans don't make nitrogenase. It's not a protein in our bodies. Um, it's only in a certain special type of bacteria called diazotropes. And so these, these bacteria take in the nitrogen and they convert it to ammonia. And it's, it's considered bioavailable. So that means now all that, those nitrogen atoms are in molecules, which can be incorporated into things like proteins, and it can be incorporated into things like carbohydrates that have nitrogen, um, DNA, RNA, um, you name it. Anything that has reduced nitrogen in it, it came from nitrogen in the air at some point. Wow, that's very cool. So, so basically what I'm hearing is nitrogenase is a very important enzyme. Oh, absolutely. Um, without it, life on Earth would not be what we know it. That... That's a big statement, uh, which is, <laughs> I mean, like, I, I think that, that, that has, like, that carries a lot of weight, right? Um, okay, so, so what is this, what is this process of, of taking nitrogen and making it usable, I guess you could say? Right, so oh, I think most people have heard of the carbon cycle, um, so that's a little bit more familiar. Um, there's also a nitrogen cycle. There's other cycles as well um, with different types of, of elements on Earth. Like there's a phosphorus cycle. But in the nitrogen cycle specifically, um, part of it is called nitrogen fixation. And so nitrogen fixation is taking N2, so uh, dinitrogen, and, and it converts it by reducing it into two molecules of ammonia, which are NH3. And so you're, you're reducing um, 
dinitrogen by six electrons, and you're also incorporating in six protons to, to create these two molecules of ammonia. And then from there, all of a sudden, now it's a much more bioavailable. And, and this nitrogen fixation process, it's actually extremely difficult if you think of it from a chemical perspective. Because, you, you know, you learn about single bonds, double bonds, triple bonds. And, and you, know, you know, a single bond is typically weaker than a double bond, which is weaker than a triple bond. So these two, mol or these two atoms of nitrogen are joined together by a triple bond. And it's extremely strong bond. It's extremely inert. And so it's very difficult to break this bond. Um, but nitrogenase can do it. Uh, on the other hand, um, it, it, it's, there's so many cool things about this. So I might be getting a little sidetracked here. But um, if you think about what goes on with you know, nitrogen and living organisms, um, up until uh, the 1900s, um, all nitrogen in every person's body on Earth at some point came from nitrogenase turning it into ammonia. But in the 1900s, a new industrial process was developed called the Haber-Bosch process. And this process can actually do something similar. It does it in a very different way. But the Haber-Bosch process can also take dinitrogen, N2, from the air and convert it into ammonia. But it's, it's completely different. So nitrogenase can do this, and it's very sustainable. It uses ATP as its sustainable source of energy, and it can do it at room temperature and room uh, atmospheric pressure. But the Haber-Bosch process requires extreme temperatures and extreme pressures. Um, and it, it, because of the Haber-Bosch process, there was a huge population boom. Um, because all of a sudden now, we had more ammonia that we could use to fertilize more crops. And if we can fertilize more crops and have more food, we can have more people on Earth. So if you actually look in the 1900s um, at the total world population, there's a huge spike. And this occurred right after the Haber-Bosch process was invented to kind of help out with what we would say nitrogenase does naturally. Um, and so at this point in time, in your body right now, if you look at all the nitrogen in it, approximately 50% of it came from the Haber-Bosch process. So it's industrially produced ammonia that was then used to form your proteins and everything that you ate and are now part of you, um, as opposed to nitrogenase, which is responsible for the other 50% of the nitrogen in your body. But the reason I like nitrogenase more than the Haber-Bosch process is that it's much more sustainable. I'm very yeah. inclined to be environmentally friendly as much as I can be. And so I study things that have to do with that. Um, and so the Haber-Bosch process uses, it's estimated two or 3% of the world's total energy consumption every year, which is huge just for Ooh. one process. Because it it, yeah. it can't even really compare to nitrogenase in terms of sustainability. So so sorry, I just um so when you said extreme temperatures and extreme pressures, like how extreme are we talking? So about four hundred atmospheres for pressure, and approximately wow. five hundred degrees Celsius. Extreme pressures and very 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 hot. That is very hot. Wow! Holy cannolis! Oh my goodness! And and I mean, like, yeah, it totally makes sense that, like, nitrogenase would be preferred because we love to see sustainability. We love sustainability. Sustainability is very important. We have to care for the earth. Anyway, yeah, okay. So, okay. So is there a, do you work with nitrogenase, Anna? I do. Um, I work with it almost every day since I'm in grad school. And 
do, do a more little bit that. more about how I work with it and how I obtain it. Uh, that, that makes it sound illicit, obtain it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so scandalous. <laughs> so in biochemistry, if you work with proteins, um, when you synthesize your proteins, you're, you're not actually doing the work yourself. You make bacteria do it for you. And then you harvest it from the bacteria. Um, and so a lot of people who work with proteins, a lot of other biochemists, um, they use systems where they use E. coli and they force E. coli to make the proteins they want. But right. because nitrogenase is actually, it's very complex compared to most proteins. Uh, I, I know I'm biased, but it actually is more complex than most proteins. Um, <laughs> it, it can't be made by E. coli. Um, e. coli just mm-hmm. can't handle it because it actually requires um, over a dozen different genes to assemble oh. this protein because it has these immense metal clusters. And, and so it has to have this special cellular machinery to put together these metal clusters and then insert them properly into the protein. And so instead of using E. coli, um, I use an organism that's called Azotobacter vinylandii. And this organism um, naturally produces the nitrogenase. So as long as you don't feed it any ammonia, so you just starve it of ammonia, it'll make its own nitrogenase. And then I just let it grow for a little bit. And then once it's had a certain uh, amount of cells that have grown, I, I, I kill them all after they do all the work for me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Ah, the joys of science. And I take all their hard work from them and I purify out my protein. But um, it's all the fruits of their labor. (laughs) It's a little bit difficult. And the reason it's difficult is um, if we think about this process, uh, I, I mentioned that nitrogen fixation is a reduction of nitrogen. And so this means that we're, we're giving electrons to the molecule dinitrogen. And so it's electron transfer. So you can think of it almost like you would think about, you know, electron, tra- or sorry, electricity is also, you know, the movement of electrons. And if you think about like electricity flowing, it has to flow through metals, right? It has to be through conductive things. And, and so nitrogenase, in order to flow the electrons to dinitrogen, has metal clusters that are kind of like a molecular wire through the protein, you could think of it that way. Mm-hmm. And these metal clusters are very oxygen sensitive. And so mm-hmm. when they're in the cell, the cell can have you know, its own protective mechanisms, and it'll protect all these very unique clusters. But as soon as I kill the cells, um, all of a sudden, there's oxygen involved. So I have to make sure I do everything under inert gases. And most of the time when you hear that, chemists think, oh, inert gas, I'll use nitrogen gas. But since I work with nitrogenase, it's not inert. Um, So I do everything under argon. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was about to say, I was like, oh, nitrogen. Oh, no, that's not a a good idea. Mm -mm. No, 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 no. Okay. So you mentioned metal cluster. I, as an inorganic chemist, like my ears just perk up every time I hear metal. So please (laughs) do tell me more about this metal cluster because I believe I've learned about it um, in like a class that I took. Uh, So so please say more words about this cluster because I'm really excited. So there's actually three of them. Three? Okay. There's three. The first one is a four iron, four sulfur cluster. And mm-hmm. four iron, four sulfur clusters are actually in lots of types of proteins. So it's not special to nitrogenase. Nitrogenase just mm-hmm. happens to have one of them. And that's the mm-hmm. starting point of our molecular wire that I mentioned. 
But then those electrons go from that cluster to an intermediate cluster. That's an eight iron seven sulfur cluster. And that eight iron seven sulfur cluster, it kind of looks like two cubes that have been fused at one of the vertices. Um, mm -hmm. And that one's in the middle. And that is unique to nitrogenase. And so that one is one of the ones that requires very special pro or very special um, gene products to actually form. Um, mm -hmm. And then the last cluster is very, very, very special. And that one's called FEMOCO, which stands for FEMO cofactor. The FE stands mm -hmm. for iron. MO stands for molybdenum. And then the CO is for cofactor. And that's where mm -hmm. the, the nitrogen molecules will actually bind and receive the electrons and the protons to become ammonia. And, and so this cluster, I'm not even going to try to describe the geometry because honestly, I'll, I'll just not be able to do it justice. But I highly mm -hmm. recommend looking it up because it's, it's beautiful. Um, <laughs> but this cluster, um, it actually it has one molybdenum. It has nine sulfurs and it has um, seven irons. In terms of biochemistry, this is huge for a, a metallic cluster. Yeah. And the very special thing about it, which all of you people who've taken organic chemistry are going to not believe me when I say this, it has one carbon in it as well. And if you learned with one random carbon. So if I said, if you learned one thing in organic chemistry, how many bonds can carbon have? Four. Unless it's a Texas carbon, then five, but... <laughs> oh, so what, well, I don't even know then how I would describe this one because it has six bonds. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. No, no, no. Okay. I mean, say more words, but like, <laughs> like the organic chemist in me is like, oh, what are you saying? Yeah, it's crazy. And so, like, for the longest time, people had studied nitrogenase and they had structurally seen that there was this atom that had six bonds in the middle. But they didn't know what it was. And when somebody finally identified it as carbon, there was kind of like this big ordeal about it because it's the only biological carbon with six bonds. But these bonds are to metals, correct? Correct. So it's it's what we call hexacoordinate and they're all to irons. Interesting. I find that so fast. Okay, so now and this is just from a from an from a an, an inorganic chemist's point of view. I feel like once metals are involved, like everything, like everything is just like out the window. Like all the rules are no longer like the rules, and life as we know it is a lie. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, everything that you learned, we're gonna have you relearn a new thing because because those bonds aren't exactly covalent, right? Right. It's still very debated. Why do we even need this carbon? Why does it have six bonds? What's going on? And it all just kind of boils down to just how difficult it is chemically to, to reduce dinitrogen. And yeah. it, it takes so many electrons. I mean, I say six electrons. And if you think about like six doesn't sound like a lot. But in order to coordinate those six electrons at the right time, because you have to think about this in terms of what's going on in the cell. Like I like to say, like, be the cell, you know, pretend you're in the cell. What's there? Like, it's not just nitrogenase. There's a whole host of other things. But if, mm -hmm. if you're if you're the cell and you're thinking like, what's in the cell? Um, there's protons, right? Like you're, you're in this mm -hmm. aqueous, gelatinous goo. There's protons in there. And mm -hmm. what's easier to reduce in terms of reduction potentials? Protons or dinitrogen? And the answer is proteins, yeah. right? So right. 
So this sounds like a, a ridiculous question, but I love it. But the question for me has always been, why is nitrogenase nitrogenase and not hydrogenase? Why doesn't it produce hydrogen instead of nitrogen? And it can, it can still produce protons, but somehow this cluster with this carbon helps control the electrons so that they preferentially go to nitrogen. Uh, honestly, I'm still stuck on the, I'm still stuck on the fact that, that we have a carbon with six bonds, that, <laughs> with six bonds, but also that we're breaking triple bonds. Folks, do, <laughs> we're doing it all. I, I'm like, I'm taking it all in. And the thing is, here's the thing, folks. I, this isn't the first time I've heard this. Like I, I Hannah and I have had conversations about this, but every time I hear about it, it's just, it's like that. It's just not, oh my goodness. Okay. So, so we've learned about you know, like the nitrogen cycle. We've learned about nitrogen fixation. We've talked a little bit about the Haber-Bosch process and why it's important and why nitrogenase um, is your favorite molecule. What exactly are you doing with nitrogenase? So I mentioned that there's those three clusters. There's the four iron, four mm -hmm. sulfur cluster. There's the eight iron, seven sulfur cluster. Um, that one's called the P cluster. And then there's FIMOCO. So I'm actually focusing on the P cluster. Because um, when I went to grad school, I, I looked at nitrogenase and I thought, holy moly, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, and then my, my next thought was, okay, like four iron, four sulfur clusters, they're interesting, but they're everywhere um, in biology. Mm -hmm. But the P cluster and FIMOCO are both completely unique to nitrogenase. And a bunch of people already study FIMOCO, but people kind of just forget about the P cluster. And it's like just this, this sad little lost cluster. Um, <laughs> and, and I was like, there has to be a reason that nature spent all of this energy evolving the P cluster, which is difficult for cells to make. So it, yeah. it, it must serve a very special and unique role. So I focus on the P cluster. Um, and I've learned a lot about how it's actually, it's very dynamic. Um, people used to think of, of iron sulfur clusters is like these rigid rocks that were in these proteins. And the whole point of the protein was to hold it still. Um, but in reality, a lot of these clusters are, are very dynamic. Um, and I've seen that like the P cluster can actually have irons that come and go. And, and it's just, it's really cool. Okay. So to recap folks, if you're wondering why, why cake is like, taking deep breaths here <laughs> not only have we spoken about uh breaking triple bonds in nitrogen which is generally seen as inert we're talking about carbons with six bonds and now we're talking about um metal clusters that that are dynamic and movie uh like they move around and that is just <laughs> That like goes against everything that I learned as a student, but like, oh, that's why science is so cool. I, I can see why this is so okay. Anyway, I, I love you getting excited for it. It makes me so happy when people love I, nitrogenase. Like I am, I'm, yeah, like I'm here for it. So okay, so you learned that it's dynamic. What am I allowed to ask? Uh, what role it plays, or are you still exploring that? So. I can talk about it a little bit, but it, it's not totally concrete yet in terms of mm -hmm. having all the evidence for this. Okay. But it kind of boils down to the question I asked earlier, why does nitrogenase or how does nitrogenase preferentially give electrons to nitrogen instead of to protons? Mm -hmm. And so it, it all really has to do with just very precisely timed electron transfer to FIMOCO where nitrogen is bound. Mm 
And by timing it just right, you can reduce dinitrogen. But that means that your molecular wire has to somehow do this, right? Your, your molecular wire has to know when it's okay to transfer these electrons. And we think, we're hypothesizing, that that's why the P-cluster is so unique, is that it actually can know the exact moment when it should transfer these electrons based on when the 4-iron, four 4-sulfur four cluster is in the right proximity to the P-cluster. And so it's, it's very dynamic. I can get into more details for the biochemists out there if you'd like, but they're, they're starting to get a little bit nitty gritty if I go into, you know, which ligands there are and things like that. Should I go into the nitty gritty of like the ligand set and all of that? By all means. Okay, perfect. Um, so for iron, four sulfur clusters, uh, you know, when you think about them, most likely you think, oh, they have cysteines that hold them in place right? Nine times out of 10, or I don't know, I might have just pulled that number, you know, out of nowhere. But most of the time, <laughs> um, <laughs> there's cysteines that hold these clusters to the protein, they ligate the irons. And so the, the mm -hmm. P cluster, um, this eight iron, seven sulfur cluster, it does have cysteines that hold it in place. But even the cysteines are a little bit abnormal. Because instead of having one cysteine per iron, um, there's actually two bridging cysteines. So what this means is you have eight irons, there's only six cysteines that are holding the cluster in place because two of the cysteines are bound to two irons each. So like that alone is a little bit peculiar. Um, what else is really interesting about the P cluster is I was talking about it being dynamic. So these dynamics you see as the, the cluster is oxidized. So once it gives its electrons to be MOCO. Um, so once this cluster is oxidized, what actually happens is two new ligands swoop in open up the cluster lid in a little bit. Yeah, I, I use very big words when I talk about this. Like, oh yeah, we swoop um, in, we swoop they, in, all right. They, they swoop their few angstroms in. <laughs> and, and they ligate some of the irons. And, and the, these ligands that, that come in are, are not typically seen with iron sulfur clusters. So one of them is actually the backbone amide of one of the, the residues in the protein comes in and ligates an iron. And then the other one, um, most of the time it's a serine, but in some organisms it's a tyrosine. And you don't normally see serine and tyrosine ligating clusters very much. But, no. but it's really cool because if you think back to, you know, Gen Chem, you learned about hard, soft, acid-based theory. And, you know, hard binds to hard, soft binds to soft. And if you think about mm -hmm. irons, um, you have iron 2 and iron 3. And when the, the cluster gets oxidized, you now have two iron 3s, iron 3 pluses in your cluster. And iron three is harder than iron two. Mm -hmm. Serine, which has um, it's a hard oxygen-based ligand, um, likes to bind iron three, but it can't really do a good job of binding iron two. So we think this is part of that control mechanism that I was kind of talking about that precisely times the electron transfer. Because all of a sudden you can have this this hard serine ligand swoop in bind only to iron three once the cluster has transferred those electrons. So it's like, okay, there must be something that, that kind of controls, we still don't know what it is, but somehow controls that's, that movement of that serine ligand. Folks at home and Hannah also. I'm at home too, that counts. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> So for folks at home, uh, we're actually doing this, this interview remotely because COVID times, right? And I think one of the things that if there's one little thing about the podcast that I, I wish I had 
uh, it, it's a, is a visual or, or a video recording of my face right now because my jaw is just to the floor. Like literally everything <laughs> that you've been saying, Hannah, is just like, it is blowing my mind. Like if you can't hear like the multiple explosions of my brain, it's probably because I have it contained in my room, but <laughs> this is so cool. Oh my goodness. Ah. Molecule of the year. Mo- yeah, my in my books. Molecule <laughs> of the century. I think it's so cool. Honestly, it it is I'm so I am so happy to have you on the show. It's been oh, thank this you. has been so incredible. Unfortunately though, we are nearing the end of our chat, but but I, I want to ask you a very, very important question, Hannah. Are you ready for it? I Before am you ready. Know. You are ready. Okay, so Hannah, what is your favorite cake flavor and why? Oh, so it, it kind of ties into nitrogenous, believe it or not. Okay. So as I mentioned, I'm really into sustainability and all of that jazz. And so to mm-hmm. me, part of that is trying to reduce the amount of animal products I eat. So really, I just try to eat vegan cake. And as long as it's vegan, I'm down for any flavor. Um, right. But yeah, so I, I'm trying to reduce my carbon footprint. And part of that for me is studying nitrogenase, but also uh, eating less animal products. Yeah, for sure. And I think sustainability is really important. And I'm really glad that um, you're doing what you can to reduce uh, your carbon footprint. Um, One of the things that I am like really big on is, so I always tell people to hydrate or dehydrate. I have my trusty 48 ounce Nalgene that I use. I actually have several Nalgenes that I rotate out and I wash them all because it's really important to do that. Um, But yeah, reusable Nalgene. Um, I have this really cool like paracord clip type handle thing and my utensils are all in this cute little case that it came in so I can clip my like reusable utensils on my um analgene if I ever like get takeout I just be like yeah I don't I don't need new utensils I have my reusables um, perfect it's really important right gotta gotta care for the earth um because honestly scientists scientists are just really curious about nature and it's really cool that we get the opportunity to study these things. And if we want to be able to study these things, we got to take care of it, right? So I, I that's, agree such a great, that's such a great answer. Such a great answer. Oh, Hannah, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. This was so fun. I really appreciate you, sweet friend. I had so much. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. Uh, I'm so, I'm so glad that we were able to do this. Oh. Um, to the listeners at home, thank you for joining in on our chat today. We always love having you. If you would like to follow the many nitrogenous adventures of Hannah Rutledge, you can follow her on Twitter at Hannah Rutrut, which will be linked in the description. And of course, if you would like to hop aboard the hype train, choo-choo, you are always welcome to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at chemistrycake. Folks, this is your gentle reminder to stay hydrated, to keep the hype alive, and to edify our village. Good nitrogen, sleep titrogen, don't let the bed bugs bitrogen, and don't forget to turn out the nitrogen. Thanks for tuning in, Cake Nation. This is Chemistry Cake, signing off.